You just met Billy Crystal. I How know. Do you feel? I feel rejuvenated. <laughs> the lady said it looked like I'm 60 years old. I'll take it. And what did Billy say I'm when you when you said that when I you went to, to get a picture of him? I slipped in from Connecticut to see you. He says, "Don't kiss me." <laughs> I said, "Thank you so much. I've enjoyed you so so much. I appreciate it." All right, he won't remember me, and I will remember him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good night. Wait till I tell Mimi. She's gonna be so excited that I talked to him. She called me three times this morning. Have a good time. Have a good time. Have a good time. Did you have a good time? I had a wonderful time. Okay. I did. No one's get a cab if I can't show up on the cement. Hey, yum's the word. Haven't you heard? The yum's the word. It was started by a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually, I blow it out a lot. True stories, some awkward. Like wetting the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So welcome all you nerds. And cool people too. This is for everyone. Except kids. Yum's the word. Hey everybody, welcome to Yum's the Word. I'm Robin Gelfenbein, and at the top you heard Auntie. Now, if you've been to any of our shows or seen any of our videos, you know how much Auntie loves Billy Crystal. She is obsessed with him. I took her to see him the other night uh, here in New York City, and afterwards we waited at the stage door, where after many, many, many years, she finally got to meet him. Um, I actually live tweeted the whole night, and one of the tweets while we were standing at the stage door was, he's not coming out, maybe he's eating. So you can read that and the rest of the live tweets at Robin Gelfenbein, that's my Twitter handle. And be sure to check out a picture of Auntie meeting Billy on our Instagram at Yum's the Word Show. Now, it's been a big week for Yum's the Word. Last week, we hosted our very first wedding. I'll tell you more about that later in the show. But for now, we're going to dedicate today's episode to, of course, Billy Crystal. We've got two incredible comedians who are going to share their stories about their road to fame. First up is Dion Flynn, who is one of the most unbelievable improvisers and impersonators I know. This is his story about his first big break. Uh, let's keep it going for Robin Gelfenbein. Gelfenbein. Oh, man. Oh, it's like 2006, uh, and my girlfriend is slapping me in the face like this, like three big times, like slow motion, like whoops. Whoops. I'm in the doorway, you know, of her apartment. And before the third slap comes, uh, things slow down, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I, this thought, my ear is ringing, uh, but this thought comes to me, uh, this is not her at her best. <laughs> which is a very generous thought, I thought, for what I was going through at the time. And then she hit me a third time. And then, I wasn't gonna tell you this part, but this is the part, I put my hands on her throat. I didn't choke her. 
Now, as soon as you're a black dude trying to explain how you didn't choke your girlfriend or how you had your hand on there, I immediately start feeling like O.J. Simpson and I'm digging myself a tunnel. Uh, so I know there's no real cool way to do that, but that's what happened. And I didn't choke her. I moved her to the side. I went back into her apartment. I got my peeler and my knife and I left. And that was the beginning of the end of our relationship. But it wasn't the beginning of the beginning of the end. That starts here. What was my part of this? She was going through a lot, obviously. She was upset with me. My part was sex, sex addiction, intrigue, love addiction. And when you're involved in that stuff, especially like your whole life, uh, it, it makes all your relationships a little crazy. And you do cuckoo things and it puts things out of balance. And then, you know, other people end up looking crazy. But if you really tell the truth about it, I had a huge contribution. So my whole life, I was just obsessed with sex. My earliest childhood memories, being sex, being abused by an adult woman, blah, 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 blah. I say blah, 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 because this is uh, sort of an upbeat story, ultimately. So it's very confused, <laughs> and believe it or not. Uh, uh, it's very confused, you know, about sexuality my whole life, but I would obsess, you know. I would, I would pick these girls in school, and I would just love them just from a distance, and I would obsess over them, and it was just, it was insane. Went into compulsive masturbation, went into sexual experimentation with boys and girls my own age when I was growing up. So I, I didn't understand my sexuality, I didn't understand like which side of the line I fell on, any of it. But it was compulsive and it was confused and it was a mess. Come to find out, that's what most people are like, ultimately. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time, I was very, you know, I was upset about this. And so I was a performer, I graduated from NYU's graduate acting program. And so I had a, you know, great, a wonderful acting pedigree and I got into the improv community, I'm performing every week and suddenly, there's this audition that comes down the pike in 2006 for a new TV show, right? Uh, Rosie O'Donnell's going to be producing it, and it's, it's going to be called Simply Sketch. And I loved it. The, the name sounded like a, a stroke of Al Hirschfeld's pen. Simply Sketch. It was just, I loved it. It was beautiful. And somebody sent me an email, and then somebody came to see me perform, and they were like, you got to go audition for this. And then it said, uh, in the email, this girl, uh, Melissa House, she's an actress and she's now teaches kids to act. And she said, you got go, uh, to go to audition for this. Uh, this. It's LGBT friendly. And I was like, wait a minute. What is it about me that makes her think I'm LGBT friendly? I'm not LGBT, am I? And then I remembered. I had been teaching a mind mapping course. My story here is actually on a mind map. Uh, and she came to it. And in one of the branches of my mind map, when I would show people about mind mapping, I'd say, one of the reasons people are often afraid to mind map is they're afraid. I used to use my radio voice when I would teach the class. Uh, the reason people are afraid is they're afraid of what's going to come out if they're really honest with themselves. And I had a rainbow branch on one of my mind, uh, mind maps that had this bisexuality branch. Because I had had gay experiences. And by gay experiences, I've told you some of them. I mean things like, you know, everybody, you know, you, you tickle some balls at an after-hour party <laughs> in college, you know, experiment with your roommate in the army, something like that. Or you just singing Les Mis in the shower. You know what I mean? I love gay culture and I love the arts and stuff like that. So I was, I was always wondering about that. I was like, am I gay? I mean, I did gay stuff, but I did regular stuff and I did more regular stuff. I'm always bargaining, you know, my way out of it. That's weird. It's this weird thing men go through. And in the neighborhood I grew up in, talk about being banana split, I was the only brown kid in my trailer park. So there was that to contend with. I knew what it was to be an outsider, to be, you know, just an outsider. Okay. So when I heard LG, I didn't want to visit any more of this on myself of being on a TV show that was LGBT friendly, but it was called Simply Sketch. So I thought I'd just get away with it, right? Because I really wanted to be on television. 
That part I knew. I really wanted, ever since I was little. Ever since I was little, I was watching Bugs Bunny and I Love Lucy and Married with Children, whatever. I just wanted to be on television because I thought that was going to fix everything. But the sex addict in me wanted to be on television because once you've been on television, I thought, or so the sex addict thought, then people would see you, they'd think you were great, and the minute you walked into the door somewhere, they'd go, oh, look, it's him from TV. And then they would have sex with you, and you wouldn't have to do stuff like small talk and get, you know, get to know people, stuff like that, because sex addiction doesn't want to like, get to know anybody. It's just all about gratification. Okay, so these are the things I'm contending with when I go to audition. And I needed money, too, at the time. It was 2006, I didn't have any money, and I, I needed money. And so I audition. I audition for Rosie O'Donnell. I get through the, 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 the preliminary audition. I get through the secondary, the tertiary, the fourth tertiary auditions <laughs> over the Logo Network. And, and, and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing stuff. I'm doing great characters. You know, I do this character, George, that I did. You know, like, yeah, there was this one time when I was a kid. You know, there were my parents. They left me at home. And I used to play with fire. And you know what I did? You know what? They, and, but I conflated it with other things I knew about uh, the gay kids in our neighborhood. Now, there weren't really any gay kids in our neighborhood, but we played games in the trailer park like Smear the Queer. It was very homophobic, the 70s down south. Smear, so I pretended like I had experienced that, so I conflated the story to be like George was playing Smear the Queer with his father and all this crazy stuff, and I was just mixing things up so that I kind of could have been perceived as, as gay, right? I, I was kind of being gay for pay. I was willing to be perceived as gay to get the job, right? Now, that was another aspect of the sex addiction, too, was being vaguely sexually available for everyone, <laughs> right? Vaguely sexually available. You know that one where you chat, you're like, you get, well, I don't know, it's, it depends on what you got to do for me. I don't know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Vaguely sexually available is a part of that addiction. Okay. Uh, so, <clears throat> I audition, I get the job. The casting lady, you know, she calls me up, she goes, you got the job, and I wasn't happy about it because the next piece of news I got was terrible. They, just so you know, she says to me on the phone, that I know you signed the contract, but said it was called Simply Sketch. They've actually changed the name of Rosie O'Donnell's show. The show you're gonna be one of the ambassadors for, the show that you're gonna be on every printed piece of material from East Coast to West Coast is now called The Big Gay Sketch Show. <laughs> Because I was thinking, you gotta understand, I was thinking I could just sneak in, get some TV, get some sex, you know, from women, uh, and then just sneak back out, you know what I mean, without anybody really seeing it. But it's called now the Big Gay Sketch Show on the, on the disc, on the DVD, on the big fe uh, velvet jacket that they gave me, which I immediately and ironically hung in my closet, said on the back, Big Gay Sketch Show. It was on everything. I had some phone calls I needed to make because I had to go warn people that I grew up with. You know, I called my friend Dean Phillips and I said, Dean, I'm gonna be on TV, man. <laughs> he was like, that's great, man. Well, what's it gonna be, dude? I was like, well, it's a show, you know, it's a big gay sketch show, but you know, anyway, uh, <laughs> you still gonna like me and stuff like that. And I was terrified that, that people were gonna not like me because I didn't wanna be, I knew what it was to be something that it was okay to hate. And that is the only brown kid in the trailer park. And I had had bad experiences. I didn't want anything else visited on me like that. So. I get into this world of the Big Gay Sketch Show. One of the first guys on the cast that I meet is Johnny McGovern, the, the gay, he called himself the Big Gay Pimp. He was the gay pimp. And it scared me, this whole world. I started being introduced to twinks and bears 
and gay culture, and it was everywhere. There was no hiding from it. And you could see in all the pictures, all the photographs, all the sketches, everything that was filmed, there's this little part of me, the homophobic part of me, I'm admitting to that, lean, just sort of leaning away. Whenever we're all in a cast picture, everybody's like, I'm over here, I'm just kind of just like this. <laughs> Because I didn't want to be there. I didn't, it was weird. I wanted to be seen by everybody and I didn't want to be seen in this light. And I didn't want to be associated here. And I was frightened and I was terrified to come out on the set as having a girlfriend. <laughs> I had to come out as straight on the big gay sketch show. Okay? And here's how it happened. One of the people who was way up in the ranks of the big gay sketch show establishment was, he thought I was cute. And now this is this vaguely gay thing. I'm just like, oh, get out of here. <laughs> just keep me on the show. I made $25,000 in like three weeks. You know, for me, that was great. You know, I was like, yes, whatever it takes. <laughs> you know, growing up gay. <laughs> oh, so I'm closeted. I'm a closeted heterosexual. <laughs> on the Big Gay Sketch Show. And so this guy takes an interest in me, and I don't tell anybody at the Big Gay Sketch Show anything about my offset life, nothing. So he says, hey, man, he goes, you know, why don't we go to a movie? You know, something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, and I put it off, put it off, finally, we did it. Went to the movie, he takes me to the movie, and I'm like, is this a date? I don't know, I'm just, I'm just vaguely sexually available. If I had a show, a sitcom, it'd be called Vaguely Sexually Available. <laughs> And I'm sitting there in the movie that he takes me to, and I know I gotta tell him. I gotta tell him I got a girlfriend. And uh, so we're there, and he's eating whatever he's eating, and I'm eating, you know, my snack, my, you know, cut up vegetables, whatever I'm eating, right? Because I'm trying to be slim and just fabulous. And um, he says, "Well, so mystery man, Mister Mystery Mister, where do you live? Like, we're not, the movie hasn't started yet, you know, and it's a." Where do you live anyway? I was like, you know, South Orange, New Jersey. But anyway, more, but what about you? What are you? Just trying to get it off of me. And I couldn't, and he drilled in, and he's, you know, he's, he's a smart guy, and he's just like, ba 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 ba. And I said, listen, man, I got to tell you something. I got a girlfriend. And he meowed, I think. He was like, meow. Meow, meow. I think that was the sound, best as I could produce it. Meow. And I said it, I timed that reveal just before the lights went down and we went on to watch the movie that he treated us to, which was Helen Mirren in The Queen, of course. That's what we went to see. Just to keep it, you know, stereotypical and terrible. And I know the story is fucking awful, but I'm telling you the truth of my inner life, okay? So I go back to the set and everything just gets worse. I'm not doing well in the sketches. I'm, it's not my comedic voice. I'm just uh, kind of a hustler. And I just want to be on TV and use this organization to sort of promote my sex-addictive causes. So one of the people on the cast is the openly lesbian Kate McKinnon. You know her from Saturday Night Live now. She was on that show first. A wonderful, wonderful person. And she felt to me to be like the safest person I could go to. Because when you're trying to come out, um, you need somebody who you can talk to. You know, and I needed to talk to her. So I went backstage, we're on Sony Studios on 57th Street, and I went to her and I sat and I said, Kate, listen, um, because I knew this person in the upper echelons knew, and I knew it was going to come down. Uh, I said, Kate, listen, I, you know, I'm I've been sick about this the whole time. Like, I have a girlfriend. I feel like I can't tell anybody. 
And I, I thought about this to, for the storytelling purposes. I want to like lay on you some pithy line that she gave me. <clears throat> and I can't recall what it was. Maybe I'll write it for future tellings of this story. But it wasn't the line that she said or didn't say. It was the way that she dealt with me. She was just comforting and said, it's OK. It's OK to be straight. <laughs> so her whole thing that she learned from being in her world, her life, she used it to sort of to comfort me. And I appreciated it. I really did. So I got kicked off that show after the first season that one of the another higher-ups called me and said, uh, uh, Dion, and I knew what the call was about. I, you, you, you can't be in a cast that you're leaning away from the whole time and be kept in it. And he calls and he says, Dion, I said, yeah. And in that knowing way, I knew it was going to happen. I'm glad there's a cabaret going on right here. Uh, no, just to keep it just jazzy. Uh, um, and she said, and, and, and he says, uh, well, you know, we're going into the second season of the show. It's been picked up. I was like, great. And he said, but we're going to have to, you know, let you go. And I was like, oh. Because I couldn't do it myself. I was so addicted to the money and the attention. And I just, so God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And now I do something much simpler just completely black and white. And that is I play Barack Obama on The Tonight Show. And, uh, you know, there are times when, uh, you know, if you're gay, you're gay. And if you're not gay, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. You can find Dion on Twitter at Dion Fly or regularly on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. So the other night after the Billy Crystal show, Auntie and her friend Nan slept over. Just before they went to bed, I interviewed Auntie about her big night. Who'd you meet tonight, Auntie? Oh, God. Billy Crystal. Do you wish he were lying next to you in bed right now? Not the way I look, honey. Particularly. <laughs> no. With the shmata in my mouth, the boots in my hair, my sexy pajamas. Are you kidding? Hi. Oh, Auntie, I'm sure Billy would take you, your shmata, and your sexy pajamas any day. I wound up sleeping on the couch that night, and I ended up having a dream about Billy Crystal. Don't ask me why. But in it, I asked him what his favorite Yiddish word is. Turns out, in my dream, it's surus, which, oddly enough, is Auntie's favorite Yiddish word. Hmm. it. For the Gentiles listening, that means meant to be. All right. Our next storyteller is Desiree Birch. Now, whenever Desiree hits the stage, it's like this tidal wave of talent is coming through. This story is no different. Here's Desiree's story about the madness she experienced when she auditioned for an NYU film. fuck is it going and she's in from london yes i am this is all for you i got my hair done in that tiny mirror in the bathroom like yes i'm from london they're expecting things um so (laughs) so um uh this is actually from that solo show tar baby i'm gonna be in edinburgh this summer if any of you go to scotland you should come 
but yes, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, so picture it. It's New York City, 2004. It's a hot, sweaty day. Everyone hates each other and everyone's broke. I know. Use your imaginations. It's so hard to access. Um, <laughs> And I am on my way to an audition. You know, I'm 25 years old. I'm a little go-getter actress. And I'm auditioning to be in my uh, second NYU student film. Yeah. It's a webisode. Yeah, it's basically something that a bunch of college kids younger than I am came up with while they were getting stoned on a twin bed. Um, and the character's name I'm auditioning for is Laquanvia. Yeah, because all black names are made of those 10-point Scrabble letters you don't know what the fuck to do with. And uh, she is going to be the comic relief while the very white protagonists struggle with their very white problems. Um, her character description will likely involve a civil service position and definitely involve the word sassy. <laughs> what the fuck is sassy? That's something you call a bratty child or a cat. Um, so anyway, I walk into the audition, right? And there's a row of, of hipsters sitting behind a fold-out table. There's like way too many hipsters there that are auditioning for this film. They all shake my hand. They tell me, you know, they're really excited to have me there. They've read my resume. They've heard about me. You know, and one of them's like, okay, whenever you're ready, go with the line, right? So I'm like, okay. Hold the elevator! Yes, that is pretty much half of what I'm going to be saying in this fucking webisode if I get this part, right? So I say the line, right? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, Desiree, that was great, you know? Um, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't hold the elevator, but it was something equally banal, right? And then, you know, he says, that was great, you know? Um, you know, but then he gives me some direction. It's like, what the fuck are you going to direct? It's hold the elevator. I say it and I leave, right? But he's like, oh, yeah, you know, come on. I need, I need it to be, you know, more cupcakes and razor blades. You know what I'm saying? You know, like, you're, you're, you're giving me a lot of no I really need more October. I'm like, yeah, totally got it. Okay, great. Hold the elevator! And then he's like, yeah, more, more. I'm like, holy elevator! Hold the elevator. I'm like, hey, you guys, I asked you to hold the elevator. Why can't you heal me? Like, I'm doing anything that this guy's asking me to. And it's crazy, right? You know? And then finally, like, the main hipster, the one with the facial hair made of irony, he, um, <laughs> he... He gives me the actual piece of direction, you know, the one that they'd all been wanting to give me since I walked in the room. He's like, yeah, could you do it a little bit more um, urban? Oh. Right? Uh-huh, you guys are smart, right? So I was like, okay, totally got it. And I'm like, hold the fucking elevator, forget about it. Ah. Ah, you know? And he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, could you do it more street? You know? And I was like, okay, uh... Do it like the clumps. Okay, wait a second. None of the things that the guy's saying actually go together, right? You know, like, does he want me to do it like, you know, I got, like, fucking, you know, tiger paws tattooed on my titties and I'm selling drugs? Or, like, does he want me to do it like I live in a Lower East Side tenement with a hundred different people from a thousand different countries? Or does he want me to do it like I'm in an Eddie Murphy, like, knockoff, you know, where everyone's sitting around the table eating chicken fried steak and chicken fried chicken and chicken fingers and their own fingers because they're too obese to move? But then I get it, you know, like they all do mean the same thing. They mean black. 
to someone who has no idea what that means. He means do it more black because you're not being black enough. And then there's this exchanged look of, you know, and me going, yeah, uh, yeah, totally, I got it, yeah. <laughs> black it up, <laughs> okay. Motherfucker, I done told y'all to hold that motherfucking elevator. Bitch, I don't know why you ain't hold that elevator like I asked you to. Here, hold my baby, I'm a cutter bitch. Hold the elevator, Jesus. Hold the elevator, Jesus. Miss Scarlett, I don't know nothing about holding no elevator. Get on up on the elevator, 11th floor on the elevator. Hold the elevator. Oh, look, oh, hold the elevator. Would you hold a jello pudding pop with the elevator while I rape you all in your sleep skin? <laughs> Little editorializing on the last one, but uh, anyway. I've clearly now filled an elevator full of one-dimensional black people, um, one of whom's raping everybody up in there. <laughs> and they love it, and they love it. They're like crying and vomiting with laughter. Like, they love it. They're like, oh my God, Desiree, you're so great. Thank you, we're definitely gonna call you. And I'm just walking out of there like, motherfucker, I know you're gonna call me. Like, I just did all the shit. Like, I know what the shit is. I know exactly what you asked for when you asked for it. Like, every person of color knows exactly what the fuck you think of them. You know, it's just like, when I walk down the street and guys cat call me and then they go, hey, you got kids? Do you know? And I'm like, fuck, can I be a black woman over 14 and not have like a train car full of kids? Like, cause that's exactly the stereotype is what it is. Like, I know what my look is. Like, I know, like, I look like I have a subway car full of kids from like a million different daddies. It looks like a baby UN meeting, you know, of different people of the fucking rainbow. And they're all like drinking grape soda and eating Doritos, you know, poking each other's eyes out with chicken bones, you know? And I'm like, you know, giving them suck on my pendulous Negro titty, singing them a spiritual, you know? Soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Like, like, I know what my stereotype is, dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not the fucking, this is not my first time at the rodeo, all right? Like, I went to fucking drama school, classically trained in all that fucking crap. Like, I went through high school drama, and that's where I actually learned how to do this, because as I'm walking out, I'm thinking about the fact, like, the day that I learned how to do this. And it was because of my high school friend, Steve, um, and he was, like, the class clown in theater class. Like, I'd finally discovered the theater, and I, like, felt like I had a place, even though I would only get cast as, like, the narrative who never interacts with any people or has relationships or like the matron who's like quirky and then evaporates, you know? Like you're always just like mystical ghost walking on stage and then saying something meaningful and then leaving. You know, it was great, it was fine. Like I was used to it, it was nice, you know? Um, and my friend Steve, he was like the class clown and he was one of these guys who like would find the laugh button in a social situation and then just keep pushing it over and over. Like the one thing he could say to make everyone laugh and when they did it, he was like, I'm a fucking terrorist, ha ha ha. <laughs> laugh, 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 right? So like he would do this with like phrases and shit all the time and then one day he discovered my button and uh, his game with me was that he would say something like moderately racist, like not even that racist because he would knew he would get a reaction out of me that would be like the most racist thing anybody had ever heard because I would just like lash out, like he would throw the bait and I would always take it, you know? So he would say some stupid, sh like, you know, the scene in theater would say fade to black and he's like, Desiree, we need you on stage, you know? And I'd be 
like, oh, you know, like come on like that or something. But yeah, so like this one day he was like, hey, Des, I'm having a party on Saturday. Don't worry. There's going to be plenty of fried chicken and watermelon, you know, right? And then I just like bust out and I'm like, oh, shit, Steve, really? They're going to be fried chicken and watermelon? That's so good because you know how black people love fried chicken and watermelon almost as much as we like crack, Steve. That's right. My dad and Colonel Sanders raped my mama and your mama, so I love some chicken and waffles. Mm, I'm going to do a tap dance for your party, Steve, because you know how, how white people can dance. You know, they always like, don't tell my heart, my achy, breaky heart. And black people dance like this. Right, you know, I'm gonna show up with my boombox on one shoulder and my illegitimate child on the other. Happy birthday, fuckface. And I would just, I got like so angry. I was just like the most angry I'd ever been. And it was this amazing moment where I, I, I realized that everyone was looking at me. And again, they were just crying with laughter. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I had the most power that I ever had in my social life as a teenager at that moment. Like everyone was just riveted by me and I hated myself at the same time. Um, I mean, I hated Steve Moore cause like he was the one who was doing this shit and he knew he could. He knew that he had like, I was going to have to res respond if he said something and then I always would and no matter what I would say it was like everyone was was hearing what I was saying but nobody was listening to it do you know what I mean like everyone's like that's so hilarious but meanwhile I'm kind of like dying on the inside and I'm like don't you see how fucking fake this is and everyone's just like this is great it was like I was on fire and nobody else could see me you know and I was just like screaming in rage and everyone's like more 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 so like when I walked out of this audition I was like I fucking know I got this you know and then I like waited for the call and then I waited for the call and then I got really pissed off two days later when I didn't get a part in this guy's shitty fucking webisode. Do you know, like there had just been space for me to show up and like do the thing and the thing was done and like I had whored myself out and now I wasn't gonna get fucking paid. And I was just, you know, and like actors always do this. They beat themselves up over, you know, like, oh, I didn't do this and blah, blah, blah. And like, I mean, honestly, I probably didn't match the suit of the guy who was gonna be in the other scene or something. Like that's why they didn't hire me. It's like always some kind of like, oh, well, you need to do this and whatever. You rarely has anything to do with you, but inside I was just kind of like, I don't understand. Like, I did this terrible fucking thing and I know I did it accurately, right? And I was like, did somebody else hate themselves better than I did? I was kind of like, well, if you're going into something hating yourself, you're probably not gonna like get anything good from it. And um, I thought about this just recently with a whole sort of like Rachel Dolezal thing exploded. It was like, oh shit, Rachel Dolezal, like black people fucking exploded. Like half of us were just like, oh, I'm cultural appropriator. And the other half was like, I don't know, she seems kind of cool. Like, I trade her for Stacey Dash, you know? Like, so, <laughs> seriously, right? Like, it was totally up in the air. But it was interesting because it was like all of this sort of like, she doesn't know our suffering, you know? Like, she doesn't know our pain fully. She's taking over the look of something without knowing our suffering. And it's kind of like, is that what identity is? Is it suffering? You know, like what is it? Is it skin that makes people black? Is it is it suffering? Is it a good weave and a bad attitude? Like what is the black combination that like you need to be official? You know, and I just kind of thought to myself like how sad because I know that I've spent a lot of time defining my own identity based on how hard I've suffered, and I remember that moment in which I was suffering so greatly, and I felt so completely far away from myself, and then I thought, well, it's got to be something else, and I think that and this is just a theory I'm working out, that like really your identity is really not so much about the like Venn diagram things of intersectionality that trap you and sort of, you know, contort your body, but it's the fact that someone's gotta take you seriously. There's like one person on 
this earth and it's you that's gotta take you seriously every time and has gotta commit to actually saying who you are and representing who you are to the world. And that's, that's even true when I like, correct my mom's grammar and she says things like, oh, that's so white of you. You know, like without any sense of malice, you know, but that's just the way that she defines me saying that the word is similar and not simular or something like that. Um, and the thing is like, I kind of feel like the identity is really just a commitment to going like, yeah, I don't dance really well and I have a flat ass and I'm still black and I'm even more than that. I'm actually me and I correct people on grammar and I'm a little bit anxious and I do really like gangster rap music very loud and it's a bunch of contradiction, but I'm committed to representing that person to everyone else and not kind of, a, you know, hiding behind what everyone's wanting to hear and that may mean that nobody holds the elevator for me, right? <laughs> or no no one even laughs, but that's, that's okay. I, I'm a big girl and I can, I can take the stairs. Um, okay, you guys are lovely. Thank you so much. Have a good night. See, I don't think I was overstating it when I said she's a total tidal wave of talent. You can follow Desiree on Twitter at DesTheRay. That's D-E-S, The Ray. Okay, so as I mentioned, we just had our very first Yum's the Word wedding. It was for my dear friend, Michael Ian Cedar, and his wife, Lauren. You actually might know Michael because he works the door at all of our shows. Now, he and Lauren wanted an unconventional wedding, and let me tell you, they got one. We did the whole ceremony in reverse. So the actual wedding took place at the very end. And this wedding was a show. We had storytellers. I wrote a custom Mad Lib story. There was live music. I made five videos of Lauren and Michael. The only thing that wasn't there were my homemade ice cream cakes. And it was a total blast. So the other night at Yum's the Word, I told the crowd the story about how Michael and Lauren met. They ended up meeting on J-Date, which is funny because neither one of them is particularly Jewish. But... Um, Michael had been on for a little while, but Lauren, this is, she's like a freaking poster child for JD. She went on, she uh, went on one date. She was on there for a month, went on one date, and it was with Michael. I was like, who are you? Like, and, um, and I was thinking, like, if they had had a tagline for her, it would have been one and done. <laughs> now, I have been doing online dating on and off for a few years, and I have met some really great guys and uh, as you can see, nothing has worked out. So um, I was thinking, well, if I had a tagline, like, like if they had a tagline for me, it would be over one billion served. I am so excited for our next show. It is our biggest show to date, and we would love to see you there. It is Tuesday, December 15th at 7.30 at Le Poisson Rouge. Now, it is my birthday month, and it is Alex's birthday, and this lineup is big. Big, I tell you, big. We've got Connie Schulman, who plays Yoga Jones on Orange is the New Black, and another star from Orange, the one and only Jason Biggs, who you may remember from American Pie. It's not what it looks like. This show is going to sell out, so get your tickets now at yumsthewordshow.com. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, and the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Vince Fairchild, Michael Cedar, Danny Artis, Megan Deneen, Ray Foley, and of course, Auntie. 
I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Billy Crystal! Oh, God. Yum's the word.